Welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the subject of shamanism, mysticism, and what the experience in each is like. Alright, with that being said, let's jump into it. Alright, so we start with shamaniceducation.org. Because I asked the question, what is shamanism? And we'll have a couple of different articles explaining what it is and what it does. All right. So this article says, Shamanism is the oldest documented spiritual belief system, dating back 40,000 years. It's practiced in every indigenous culture across the planet. It is an open source practice rooted in the presence of gratitude, and the inner connectivity of all things. The term shamanism evolved from the Yvink and Tungus language of North Asia. It was introduced into the West after Russia conquered the Kanati of Kazan in 1552. Upon learning about other religions with similar features, Western scholars applied the term to indigenous religions in Asia, Australia, and the Americas. A shaman refers to a person who makes journeys to other realities or worlds in an altered state of consciousness. The journeys are intended to heal, get information, or do other things. In fact, if shamans do not get results, they eventually are not used by their people. Technically, shamanism is not actually a religion. It can coexist with religions. For example, in Siberia, shamanism is conducted within Buddhist and Lamaism, and in Japan, in Buddhism. Shamans are normally found in cultures which believe there are spirits. Shamans interact with spirits to obtain results like healing. Shamans do not exclude other methods of healing. The shaman's purpose is to make a person well. If this can coordinate with modern medicine or technology, most shamans would have no issue. As the modern world encroaches, tribal youth choose modern conveniences over learning traditional cultures from their elders. Within a single generation, much of this wisdom could be lost forever. So we hop over to Wikipedia because I want to know where it came from. And although described a little bit in our previous article, I want to know more. All right. Shamanism is a religious practice that involves a practitioner or shaman interacting with what they believe to be a spirit world through altered states of consciousness, such as trance. The goal of this is usually to direct spirits or spiritual energies into the physical world for the purpose of healing, divination, or to aid human beings in some other way. Beliefs and practices categorized as shamanic have attracted the interest of scholars from a variety of disciplines, including anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, religious studies scholars, philosophers, and psychologists. Hundreds of books and academic papers on the subject have been produced, with a peer-reviewed academic journal being devoted to the study of shamanism. In the 20th century, non-indigenous Westerners involved in countercultural movements such as hippies and the New Age 
created modern magico-religious practices influenced by their ideas of various in indigenous religions, creating what has been termed neo-shamanism or neo-shamanic movement. It has affected the development of many neo-pagan practices, as well as faced a backlash and accusations of cultural appropriation Exploitation and misrepresentation when outside observers have tried to practice the ceremonies of or represent centuries-old cultures to which they do not belong. The modern English word shamanism derives from the Russian word salmon, which itself comes to the word from a Tungusic language, possibly from the southwestern dialect of the Ivenki spoken by the Sim Avenki peoples, or the Manchu language. The etymology of the word is sometimes connected to the Tungus root sa, meaning to know. However, Finnish ethno-linguist Juha Janhunen questions the connection on linguistic grounds. The possibility cannot be connected completely rejected, but neither should it be accepted without reservation, since the assumed derivative relationship is phonologically irregular. Right? Mircea Elady noted the Sanskrit word sramana designated a wandering monastic or holy figure has spread to many Central Asian languages along with Buddhism and could be ultimate origin of the word shaman. Well, let's get into some definitions. There is a single agreed-upon definition of the word shamanism among anthropologists, or there is no single agreed-upon definition. Thomas Downson suggests three shared elements of shamanism. Practitioners consistently alter consciousness. The community regarding regard altering consciousness as an important ritual practice, and the knowledge about the practice is controlled. The English historian Ronald Hutton noted that by the dawn of the 21st century, there were four separate definitions of the term, which appeared to be in use. The first of these used the term to refer to anybody who contacts the spirit world while in an altered state of consciousness. The second definition limits the term to refer to those who contact a spirit world while in altered states of consciousness at the behest of others. The third definition attempts to distinguish shamans from other magico-religious specialists who are believed to contact spirits, such as mediums, witch doctors, spiritual healers, or prophets, by claiming that shamans undertake some particular technique not used by the others. The fourth definition identified by Hutton uses shamanism to refer to the indigenous religions of Siberia and neighboring parts of Asia. According to the Golomt Center for Shamanic Studies, a Mongolian organization of shamans, the event word shaman would more accurately be translated as priest. Shamanism is a system of Religious practice, historically, it is often associated with indigenous and tribal societies and involves belief that shamans, with a connection to the other world, have the power to heal the sick, communicate with spirits, and escort souls of the dead to the afterlife. The origins of shamanism stem from indigenous peoples of far northern Europe and Siberia. 
Despite structural implications of colonialism and imperialism that have limited the ability of indigenous people to practice spiritual traditions, many communities are undergoing resurgence of their self through self-determination and the reclamation of dynamic traditions. Other groups have been able to avoid such, some of these structural impediments by virtue of their isolation, such as the nomadic Tuvan, with an estimated population of 3,000 people living from this tribe. Tuva is one of the most isolated Asi Asiatic tribes in Russia, where the art of shamanism has been preserved until today due to its isolated existence, allowing it to be free from the influences of other major religions. So what are the beliefs? There are many variations of shamanic through shamanism throughout the world, but several common beliefs are shared by all forms of shamanism. Common beliefs identified by a lady in 1972 are the following. Spirits exist and they play important roles both in individual lives and in human society. The shaman can communicate with the spirit world. Spirits can be benevolent or malevolent. The shaman can treat sickness caused by malevolent spirits. The shaman can employ trances, inducing techniques to incite visionary ecstasy or go on vision quests. The shaman's spirit can leave the body to enter the supernatural world to search for answers. The shaman evokes animal images as spirit guides, omens, and message bearers. The shaman can perform other varied forms of divination scry, throw bones or runes, and sometimes foretell the future events. Shamanism is based on the premise that the visible world is pervaded by invisible forces or spirits, which affect the lives of the living. Although the causes of disease lie in the spiritual world, inspired by malicious spirits, both spiritual and physical methods are used to heal. Commonly, a shaman enters the body of the patient to confront the spiritual infirmity, and heal by banishing the infectious spirit. Many shamans have expert knowledge of medicinal plants native to their area, and an herbal treatment is often prescribed. In many places, shamans learn directly from the plants, harnessing their effects and healing properties after obtaining permission from the indwelling or patron spirits. In the Peruvian Amazon basin, shamans and Karanderos use medicine songs called Icaros to evoke spirits. Before a spirit can be summoned, it must teach the shaman its song. The use of totemic items such as rocks with special powers or an animating spirit is common. Such practices are presumably very ancient. Plato wrote in his Phaedrus that the first prophecies were the words of an oak, and that those who lived at the time found it rewarding enough to listen to an oak or a stone, so long as it was telling the truth. Belief in witchcraft and sorcery, known as brujera in Latin America, exists in many societies. Other societies assert all shamans have the power to both cure and kill. Those with shamanic knowledge usually enjoy great power and prestige in the community. 
but they may be also be regarded suspiciously or fearfully as a potential harmful to others. By engaging in their work, a shaman is exposed to significant personal risk as the shamanic plant materials can be toxic or fatal if misused. Spells are commonly used in an attempt to protect against these dangers, and the use of more dangerous plants is often very highly ritualized. Shamans often claim to have been called through dreams or signs. However, some say their powers are inherited. In traditional society, shamanic training varies in length, but generally takes years. Turner and colleagues mention a phenomenon called shaman shamanistic initiation crisis, a rite of passage for shamans to be, commonly involving physical illness or psychological crisis. The significant role of initiatory illness is the calling of a shaman can be found in the case history of Chuanaswan. One was who was one of the last shamans among the Tungus peoples in northeast China. The wounded healer is an archetype for a shamanic trial and journey. This process is important to young shamans. They undergo a type of sickness that pushes them to the brink of death. This is said to happen for two reasons. The shaman crosses over to the underworld. This happens so the shaman can venture to its depths and bring back vital information for the sick and the tribe. The shaman must become sick to understand sickness. When the shaman overcomes their own sickness, they believe they will hold the cure to heal all that suffer. Drums. The drum is used by shamans of several people in Siberia. The beating of drums allows the shaman to achieve an altered state of consciousness or to travel on a journey between the physical and spiritual worlds. Much fascination surrounding the role of the acoustics of the drum play to the shaman. Shaman drums are generally constructed of an animal skin stretched over a bent wooden hoop with the handle across the hoop. Shamans have been conceptualized as those who are able to gain knowledge and power to heal in the spiritual world and dim or dimension. Most shamans have a dream or have dreams or visions that they convey certain messages. Shamans may claim to have or have acquired many spirit guides who they believe guide and direct their path in their travels in the spirit world. These spirit guides are always thought to be present within the shaman, although others are said to encounter them only when the shaman is in trance. The spirit guide energizes the shamans, enabling them to enter the spiritual dimension. Shamans claim to heal within the communities and spiritual dimension by returning lost parts of the human soul from where they have gone. Shamans also claim to cleanse excess negative energies, which are said to confuse or pollute the soul. Shamans act as mediators in their cultures. Shamans claim to communicate with spirits on behalf of the community, including the spirits of the deceased. Shamans believe they can communicate with both living and dead to alleviate unrest, unsettled issues, and to deliver gifts to the spirits. So we go over to India Times, where they have an article called Who are shamans and what do they do? Everything you need to know about the ancient spirit talkers by Tanya Anand. In the last decade or so, we've witnessed an explosion of healing therapies and channels of spirituality that we can connect with. Reiki, Theta Healing, the Angel Guidance are just some of them. But there's one philosophy 
which is one of the oldest belief systems in the world, dating back almost 30,000 years and is still prevalent in a few cultures around the world. Shamanism is a spiritual traditional practice known to have started in Siberia and Mongolia. In ancient times, its practitioners were referred to as witch doctors or priests of the devil, since shamans have the power to enter trance at will. To understand correctly, shamans are healers who can move into altered states of consciousness, connect with the spirit world to bring back information for healing purposes, and to help individuals diagnose their problems using the knowledge they gather. Shamans use elaborate techniques and tools to carry out their rituals. They may vary, but the main essence remains the same. For instance, drums and rattles are essential elements. However, in certain parts of the world, they may not be required at all. The main focus is how effectively the shaman can connect with the energies required for healing. Detachment from ego and pride are the main lessons that a shaman strives to master. Compassion and empathy are necessary skills to be a successful shaman. Some of the techniques used include soul retrieval, spirit channeling, stone healing, and sacred pipe. In each of these processes, the shaman journeys to other worlds. However, he retains control over their physical body. In soul retrieval, the shaman enters a state of trance to bring back missing parts of a client's soul. In stone healing, stones are used to create power bands around the individual for protection. These serve as shields. Spirit channeling is one of the most common techniques. It involves making a direct connection with the spirit world and the client's body. The spirit sends them healing through compassionate songs. The sacred pipe is used mostly by shamans in North America. The consumption of alcohol, magic mushrooms, and hallucinogenic brews is common for the attainment of ecstasy to perform their rituals. Shamans are dressed in robes made from animal skin, accompanied by an elaborate headgear and a percussion drum or tambourine. The headgear is made up of bird feathers, and these give the shaman strength and versatility. In some traditions, the headdress is made of deer antlers. The earliest references to shamanism in Siberia are around the 14th century. It involved a reference for all spirits, since it was believed that everything in the natural world was governed by spirit force. Shamans in those days were not just limited to being healers, but they also took on other roles such as curing diseases, interpreting dreams, blessing newborn babies, overseeing burials, even serving as midwives. Yes, women could be shamans too. They were referred to as shamankas. Initiation was either a hereditary process through either of the parents, or when the individual felt a strong calling towards the cult and left mainstream society to dabble in the practice. Oftentimes, these initiations include episodes of rebirth, journeys to the underworld, or out-of-body experiences. Research shows that the shamans from Siberia traveled across the Bering Land Bridge, which connects Siberia to Alaska, and this is how shamanism reached parts of North America, South America, and Africa. The Bering Bridge disappeared 12,000 years ago due to the melting of the Arctic glaciers. Today, these regions have several tribes and communities which continue to per persevere in the practice, 
each with its own variation and adaptation. So we ask ourselves, what is a shamanic journey? Or what is the experience like? So we go over to vacau.com where they have an article, Rituals of Transformation, What a Shamanic Journey is Really Like. Google shamanic journey and you'll get everything and anything from a healing ceremony, online training, or videos of human pretzels with smoke all around them to tales of how one healed their romantic history, opening themselves up for true love once again. Yoga is yoga, until you become aware that there are so many different forms, limbs, and modalities of yoga. Same in the instance of these types of spiritual experiences. Each resort, shaman, and receiver will have a unique experience based on many different variables that are beyond a single article. So instead of giving you a specific definition of what a shamanic journey is, I'll share with you my experience at Palmia, the House of Aya Wellness Resort in Playacar, Mexico, earlier this year. And yes, there was smoke, and I healed some histories too. Nos vamos. Is it religious? This one we can define. A shaman is a person who acts as an intermediary between the natural and supernatural worlds, using magic to cure illness, foretell the future, and control spiritual forces, etc. Some may argue it's a religious ceremony. Personally, I relate to a shaman and shamanism on more of a spiritual level, where the individual is on a path to get closer to one's purest self, rather than a godlike figure. But that's my interpretation, and to each and each their own beliefs. Where does it take place? Palmia House of Aya has an ethos, an idea or ideology, of reconnecting with nature, the sanctity of life, and the true human spirit. Appropriately so, then, that the actual ceremony took place outside within nature, surrounded by the trees, under the rays of sunlight, audibly whispering the chirp of wildlife around me. The ritual's deck in Palmia is a circular wooden platform that lies within the vortex of energetic space. Located at the center of the property, the ritual's deck is equally visible from the main pathway, or health trail, as it's called, and hidden from distractive view. The third day of my visit, I joined in on the scheduled ceremony, meant to be because earlier in the day it rained quite heavily and it cleared just in time for the deck to dry and open the outdoor space for the experience. You are in the middle of the jungle in the Riviera Maya, so the rain is as natural to the territory as papayas are. I recommend arriving 5-10 to minutes before the actual class or ceremony begins to give yourself some time to set up a comfortable space within the provided props and such. Further, to avoid being disruptive once it begins. At Palmia, we grabbed a yoga mat, a blanket, and a bolster, those long pillows to sit or lay on, and found a space in the radius of the ritual deck center where the shamans was set up. What do you do? I'd be lying if I told you I remembered every single step and word shared by the shaman in this one, but there were quite a few sections, scents, mantras, and subjects talked upon to remember 
all of that. But there were some magical moments and key phrases to highlight that were memorable even months later. El amor es la medicina más poderosa, or translated to English, love is the most powerful medicine. Words spoken by the shaman who led the ceremony both English and in Spanish. He continued, how can we care for the earth if we cannot care for our body? As he walks delicately through the seated pool of attendees, myself included, in his hands a cup with copal, a tree resin burned as an incense during a portion of the ceremony, resembling the central force. He continued, later burning Palo Santo, another wood incense representing the south, or sir. Lastly, sage to represent the north in spirit and energy. Sitting, later standing, one by one, the shaman grazed our auras, our energetic space around our bodies, cleaning, clearing, and cleansing out the former weight, darkness, and past. Thoughts become your words, become your actions. Find balance, harmony between them. Wise words, wise man. The sunlight beamed through the trees from the sky above and brightly lit my forehead. At this point in the ceremony, I zoned out into my own thinking and experiences, feeling the sun, experiencing overthinking, and letting go of some previous traumas through the form of tears, releasing and letting go. Truth is, this wasn't the first time I had experienced a shamanic ceremony. In many ways, this particular ceremony was the opportunity for me to let go of a previous memory in the Riviera to open space up for self-love again. Perhaps that was the sunlight coming through, the tears releasing, the elongated free excels I was able to endure during, towards the end. As experiences go, they are a feeling, not a doing. So all I can definitively say is I was feeling healing and freeing from this shamanic experience. How shamanic journey experiences may vary. This will greatly vary depending on where you're choosing to stay. However, a few general notes. It is fairly non-invasive. You can choose to take part in as much or as little of the ceremony as you'd like. If you're sensitive to smells or any such element, just talk to the wellness coordinator or shaman if possible prior to the start of the ceremony. The more open you are to the healing process, the more you can benefit from the actual experience. A closed mind allows for closed experience. The reverse is true too. Open, receive, and allow the experience embedded within you. All right, and that was written by Sarah Kiriconi. Very cool. We hop over to mindbodygreen.com, where there's an article, 90 Minutes with a Shaman Changed My Life, Here's How, by Serena Lee. It's an early Friday evening, and the anticipation of a night out to see friends after a long week brings a lightness to the air. Yet, I'm lying in yoga clothes on my carpet in the middle of my living room. The smell of sage still wafts over me, and I wait until it's time to call in for my appointment with a shamanic practitioner that evening. Shamanism, to me, was an abstract concept. Curiously enough, just a few years ago, my Friday plans would have looked extremely different. 
I used to welcome the weekend by making a mental checklist of the different parties I needed to attend to combat my feelings of anxiety and loneliness. Then I'd drink just enough to convince myself I was having a good time. But after a few notable mushroom trips, exploration in lucid dreams, and foray into daily meditation, I started to become more and more curious about what else could be possible in this world. Shamanism to me was an abstract concept. I studied as an anthropology. I, it evoked images of half-naked men masked with face paint, chanting in foreign languages, and communing with otherworldly spirits. So at a woman's wilderness event in the Colorado mountains, I was surprised to discover the unlikely Chris Abrams, a former Rhodes Scholar and Oxford graduate who is now a psychotherapist and shamanic practitioner. She taught me that shamanism is deeply rooted in nature, the belief that nature is alive, that natural objects have souls and can communicate wise life lessons if we take the time to listen. Chris asked me, have you ever spent time in nature and suddenly felt connected to something bigger than you? Have you sensed that trees are wise or that wild animals might have something to communicate to you? The shamanic journey is an intentional time in which a person seeks the advice or wisdom of spirit helpers such as plants, animals, ancestors, and other natural beings. The concept is not unlike a prayer, a way of communicating with the sacred or divine. My shamanic practitioner and I had a preliminary phone call to discuss why I was interested in shamanism, and I explained my curiosity in exploring the unknown, my past dalliances with psychedelics as medicine, and the desire to figure out how I, how I could continue to incorporate more writing into my life. Chris explained that no drugs were involved in her process. In fact, a common misconception with shamanism is that plant medicine or psychedelics must be involved. Chris prefers to help individuals reach a state of being where the rational mind fades into the background, allowing the heart and intuition to step into the foreground. I prepared for the session in a quiet, calm space with my headphones in and a journal out for notes. I had no idea what to expect. How could one reach a transcendent state? or make contact with a spirit helper, completely sober and awake. Before we begin the formal journey, I talk through some trivial annoyances in my life. I mostly want to address the issue of becoming a real writer, but perhaps I know it. We drop into shama but before I know it, we drop into shamanic space. My breath is steady and my spirit healer appears quickly. Chris describes to me a female wolf, and then in my mind the details come alive. She has thick white fur that turns gray at the tips and golden eyes. My shamanic practitioner describes the scene to me. She's howling loudly, exposing her vulnerable neck. And then we are simply staring at each other, quiet. Her open neck is a signal of trust and we gaze upon each other as equals. I can feel my analytical mind attempt to pull back from what is happening. And in that moment, the wolf paces places my forearm in her mouth, as if to say gently, stay with me. At this point, Chris asked me to describe how I feel, but I can't come up with the right words. All I can formulate is an incredible lightness of being, a joy and immense gratitude for all the memories that I already have, and a desire to share them with the world through my writing. 
The wolf scoffed at this idea, disdainful of the publishing world that is ultimately driven by consumerism, an ideology contrary to my beliefs. The wolf is telling me to let go of my ego and to let the idea let go of the idea that once my name is in print at McNally, Jackson, or the Strand in New York City is when I have become a writer. I am told to let go of wanting to prove myself to my old friends who so value prestige and long-standing institutions. We start walking in the woods. It's a cold, crisp night, and my hands go slightly numb, and my legs are warm from moving on the soft snow beneath my feet. There are words imprinted in the distant sky, and I realize that I have been striving for success defined by others, defined by demand and consumerism. These words are so far removed from what I really want to write and are not authentic to what I believe. And as that happens, words start streaming out of my chest, words that are unadulterated and true to my heart, and the wolf begins to howl again. The session ended about an hour and a half. I felt completely relieved of my self-imposed pressure and deadline to print something, to print anything, even if it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Was my shamanic journey imaginary or real? I realize now more than ever that it was difficult to draw that distinction. After all, when we dream, it feels as real as real life. And the first step is making anything a reality is to imagine it. In my mind, the journey was an interesting form of therapy that allowed me to exercise my imagination and to really sit with and interpret what my feelings meant. That me, from a few years back on a Friday night, would be mortified to so openly write about my anxiety, loneliness, and deepest desires. But if the shamanic journey taught me anything, it's to be more vulnerable and authentic, especially in my writing. Shamanism, where you can have these mystical experiences. Have you ever heard of shamans or shamanism? If you're really into spiritual stuff, then you might be lucky enough to be familiar with this unique practice. But if you're not, better brace yourself because you're about to enter a unique world that you've probably never imagined before. Shamanism is the oldest spiritual practice in the world. Shamanistic practices uses a set of practical methods that have been helping human beings on all continents of the planet to survive during the Paleolithic period during, despite the lack of contact with each other. What is a shaman? Shamans are people considered to have influence in and access to the worlds of malevolent and benevolent spirits. A shaman often enters into a state of trance during rituals and practices, healing and divination. Practices of shamanism all over the world. If you're curious to experience authentic shamanism and all its mystiques, the good news is that continues to be practiced in many parts of the world right now. Shamanism in Africa. Most Africans today practice their own religions, but some continue to nurture their belief in the spiritual teachings that can be traced back to ancient times. African shamans, just like other shamans, believe that evil spirits cause diseases and illnesses in people. Shamans in Africa help ward off evil spirits that attach themselves to an individual through the assistance of their ancestors and using ancient spiritual rituals. Shamanism in America. There are various tribes in America with different shamanic practices. North America, for example, has somewhat different practices. 
Their spiritual healers are not really called shamans, even if they practice and perform the same rituals as other shamans in other parts of America. Using the psychoactive tree bark called ayahuasca is common in South America. There is a belief that the psychedelic bark is directly related to the spiritual realm. This is the realm where you will find encounter spirits from the so-called beyond that can provide cosmic and ancient wisdom, offer spiritual advancements that you might otherwise miss out on during your ordinary human experience. The shamans in the American regions also tend to act as guides to the spiritual knowledge in the form of healing. Shamanism in Asia? This particular sect of shamans, as well as their followers, have definitely come a very long way through the years. There's even a belief that shamanism may have originated in Asia. The shamanic traditions in Asia believe tapping into animal spirits for guidance since the animal spirits host exceptional power for healing. Asian shamans also use various instruments such as bells, drums, and others to conduct their ancient rituals. With Asia being the origin of shamanism, most of the shamans in the region are known as among the most spiritually gifted people on the planet. This makes Asia the perfect place to visit if you want the most authentic experience that you can only get from where everything originated. Shamanism in Europe? Siberian and Asian travelers brought shamanism to Europe. From then on, shamans acted their spiritual teachings or added their spiritual teachings to the Western culture, providing a new spiritual sense in Europe through ancient shamanistic teachings, even if religion plays its deep-rooted role in history of the continent. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, so while we could spend the entire episode on shamanism itself, I wanted to also include in this episode about mystics and mysticism. So we'll circle back in the end to experiences of both, but for now, let's get into what is mysticism. All right, so we hop over to learnreligions.com, Ancient and Modern Mysticism and Mystics by Lisa Rudy. The word mysticism comes from the Greek word mystis, which refers to an initiate of a secret cult. It means the pursuit or achievement of personal communion with or joining with God or some other form of a divine or ultimate truth. A person who successfully pursues and gains such communion can be called a mystic. While experiences of mystics are certainly outside of everyday experience, they are not generally considered to be paranormal or magical. This can be confusing when, because of the words mystical, as in the mystical feats of the great Houdini and mysterious are so closely linked to the word mystic and mysticism. Key takeaways? What is mysticism? 
Mysticism is the personal experience of the absolute or divine. In some cases, mystics experience themselves as part of the divine. In other cases, they are aware of the divine as separate from themselves. Mystics have ex existed throughout history, around the world, and may come from any religious, ethnic, or economic background. Mysticism is still an important part of religious experience today. Some famous mystics have had a profound impact on philosophy, religion, and politics. All right. Mystics have and still do emerge from many different religious traditions, including Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Taoism, South Asian religions, and animistic and totemistic religions around the world. In fact, many traditions offer specific paths by which practitioners may become mystics. A few examples of mysticism in traditional religions include the phrase Atman is Brahman in Hinduism, which roughly translates as the soul is one with God. The Buddhist experiences of Tathata, which can be described as the thisness of reality outside of everyday sense perception, or the experiences of Zen or Nirvana in Buddhism. The Jewish Kabbalistic experience of the Sephirot, or aspects of God, which, when understood, can provide extraordinary insights into the divine creation. Shamanistic experiences with spirits or connected with the divine in relation with healing, interpretation of dreams, etc. Christian experiences of personal revelations from or communion with God. Sufism, the mystical branch of Islam, through which practitioners strive for communion with the divine through little sleep, little talk, little food. While all these examples can be described as forms of mysticism, they are not identical to one another. In Buddhism and some forms of Hinduism, for example, the mystic is actually joined with and part of the divine. In Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, on the other hand, mystics commune with and engage with the divine, but remain separate. Similarly, there are those who believe that a true mystical experience cannot be described in words. An ineffable or indescribable mystical experience is often referred to as apophatic. Alternatively, there are those who feel that mystical experiences can and should be described in words. Cataphatic mystics have made specific claims about mystical experience. How people become mystics. Mysticism is not reserved for the religious or a particular group of people. Men are as likely as women, and perhaps more likely, to have mystical experiences. Often, revelations and other forms of mysticism are experienced by the poor, the illiterate, and the obscure. There are essentially two paths to become a mystic. Many people strive for communion with the divine through a range of activities that may include anything from meditation and chanting to asceticism to drug-induced trance states. Others, in essence, have mysticism thrust upon them as a result of unexplained experiences that may include visions, voices, or other non-corporeal events. One of many mystics was Joan of Arc. Joan was a 13-year-old peasant girl with no formal education, 
who claimed to have experienced visions and voices from angels who guided her to lead France to victory over England during the Hundred Years' War. By contrast, Tom and Merton is a highly educated and respective and respected contemplative Trappist monk who, whose life has been dedicated to prayer and writing, mystics through history. Mysticism has been a part of human experience around the world for all of recorded history. While mystics can be of any class, gender, or background, only a relative few have had a significant impact on philosophical, political, or religious events. There were well-known mystics around the world, even in ancient times. Many, of course, were obscure or known only in their local arenas, but others actually changed the course of history. The following is a short list of some of the most influential. The great Greek mathematician Pythagoras was born in 570 BCE and was well known for his revelations and teachings about the soul. Born around 563 BCE, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, is said to have achieved enlightenment when sitting beneath a Bodhi tree. His teachings have had a profound impact on the world. Confucius, born around 551 BC, Confucius was a Chinese diplomat, philosopher, and mystic. His teachings were significant in his time and have seen many resurgences in popularity over the years. Medieval Mystics During the Middle Ages in Europe, there were many mystics who claimed to see or hear saints or experience forms of communion with the Absolute. Some of the most famous included Meister Eckhart, a Dominican theologian, writer, and mystic, was born around 1260. Eckhart is still considered to be one of the greatest German mystics, and his works are still influential. St. Teresa of Avila, a Spanish nun, lived during the 1500s. She was one of the great mystics, writers, and teachers of the Catholic Church. Eleazar ben Judah, who was born toward the end of the 1100s, was a Jewish mystic and scholar whose books are still read today. Contemporary mystics? Mysticism has continued to be a significant part of religious experience past the Middle Ages and into the present day. Some of the most significant events of the 1700s and beyond can be traced to mystical experiences. A few examples include Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, based much of his thinking on the works of Meister Eckhart and may have been a mystic himself. Mother Anne Lee, the founder of the Shakers, experienced visions and revelations which led her to the United States. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism and the Latter-day Saint movement, undertook his work after an experience of a series of visions. Is mysticism real? There's no way to absolutely prove the truth of personal mystical experience. In fact, many so-called mystical experiences may be the outcome of mental illness, epilepsy, or drug-induced hallucinations. Nevertheless, religious and psychological scholars and researchers tend to agree that the experience of a bona fide mystics are meaningful and important. Some of the arguments that support this perspective include the universality of mystical experience. It has been a part of human experience throughout history, around the world, regardless of factors related to age, gender, wealth, education, or religion.
The impact of mystical experience, many mystical experiences, have had profound and hard-to-explain impacts on people around the world. Joan of Arc's visions, for example, led the French victory in the Hundred Years' War. The inability of neurologists and other contemporary science scientists to explain at least some mystical experiences as being all in the head. As the great psychologist and philosopher William James said in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, A Study in Human Nature, although so similar to states of feeling, mystical states seem to those who experience them to also be states of knowledge. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, all inarticulate though they remain, and as a rule they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. All right, we hop over to an article on anamchara.com by Carl McCollman. Uh, pretty much like what is mysticism and why should we care? I won't read the whole article as we've already mentioned a lot of what they speak to, but I do like um, his definition of mysticism or a template for mysticism. So they are as follows. Mysticism refers to the experience of God, which can range from an ordinary sense of practicing the presence to a truly extraordinary peak experience. Mysticism also refers to an exalted or ecstatic level of consciousness, the sense of being enlightened or attaining non-dual ways of knowing and seeing. Mysticism may point to someone who has extraordinary abilities, a truly gifted sense of union with God, or the possession of supernatural charismatic gifts. Mysticism can also mean having an abiding belief in God's presence, an intimate activity in one's life, even without extraordinary experiences or gifts. And finally, mysticism also points to the inner dimension of religious faith and practice, where, relig where religion means more than just an institution or set of external rituals, but points to an interior transformation that has been nurtured by religious observance, but ultimately transcends the limitation of religious dogma and institutional identity. We go to OprahDaily.com. Signs you might be a mystic. You may know one, or even be one yourself. Written by Samantha Vincenti. Ask someone without a theology degree to picture a mystic, and they might imagine a yogi meditating on a mountaintop the whirling dervishes of Turkey, or a nun living a monastic life of fervent prayer. People slightly more familiar with the word may even be able to name a few of the best-known mystics, Rumi, a 13th century poet and Sufi mystic, or Saint Teresa of Avila, a Spanish nun known for writing about her mystical experiences, including levitation. All of these examples have one thing in common. They live, or lived, in a place and time far removed from anything we can relate to today. Nobody envisions a mystic plodding outside to grab the mail. According to scholars and self-described mystics, that's not always the case. What's more, 
there are evidently plenty of self-identified mystics among us today. So what exactly is a mystic? The answer to that question varies according to who's doing the defining and which religion or belief system they subscribe to. Truth-seeking and dedication to make a first-hand connection with a higher power are the consistent themes. A mystic is a person who has direct experience of the sacred, unmediated by conventional religious rituals or intermediaries. There's a quote from Marabai Star, who is both written about and translated original mystic texts. Achieving that sacred or divine experience requires transcending established belief systems, bypassing the intellect, and dissolving identification with the ego self, Star says. To qualify as a mystic, as one who has had a mystical experience or series of mystical experiences, it really means allowing yourself to let go of your identity and just being. A mystic is someone who has an experience of the union with the one, and the one may be God, it may be Mother Earth, it may be the cosmos. That experience is rare, but everyone has them, I think. Where you momentarily forget that you are a separate ego, personality, self, and you experience your interconnectedness with all that is, Star continues. Since the word mystical is somewhat subjective here, we'll go with the def dictionary definition. Involving or having the nature of an individual's direct subjective communion with God or ultimate reality. The moment of union may be a full-blown mystical experience like the Christian mystics or the Hindu mystics speak about, where you go into almost trance-like state, but it doesn't have to be. What does a mystic do? Anything and everything. That's the key, says Star. To qualify as a mystic, as one who has had a mystical experience or a series of mystical experiences, it really means allowing yourself to let go of your individualated identity and be, she continues. A mystic may cultivate these experiences through meditation or what Star calls a more contemplative variety of prayer. It's kind of like turning inward and allowing yourself to just abide in a space that makes a welcoming place for the sacred. Writing poetry is another way that mystics have traditionally made a welcoming place for the sacred, which Rumi, 16th century Hindu mystic Maribai, star's namesake, or 14th century Persian poet Hafiz were famous for. Those verses often take an almost longing, romantic tone, as in Maribai's I Send Letters, which begins, I send letters to my beloved the dear Krishna, but he sends no message of reply. Discursive language engages the intellect and analytical mind in such a way that it kind of precludes that softening, that heart space, Star says. That is where the mystic lives and where the mystical experience unfolds. Even if a mystic isn't moved to put pen to paper, simply reading others' poetry can bring them to transcendence. Mystical poetry is both an outpouring of a mystic's own experience and an invitation for everyone else to enter that kind of mystical heart space, Star continues. 
all of the mystics across the traditions claim the same thing, which is my experience of union with the beloved is absolutely ineffable. It cannot be described in words or concepts, and yet they can't help but write about it or sing about it or paint about it. Are there Catholic mystics? Yes. There are academics, members of the clergy, and the Catholic Church members who believe in mystics of the past, or even identify as one themselves. In a 2013 interview about Christian mysticism, Professor Roman Catholic theologian Bernard McGinn said that a mystical person would be someone who's committed to the search for a deeper contact with God. A mystic, by his definition, who has achieved that in a very supreme way. Perhaps the most famous example of a highly regarded myst Catholic mystic who achieved it in a supreme way was St. Teresa of Avila, a Spanish Carmelite nun and author. A polarizing figure during her time as a Carmelite reformer, her own ecstatic religious experiences included accounts of levitation through modern history, though modern historians have speculated that she actually suffered from epilepsy. The nuns writing on prayer, particularly the ways of perfection, are still considered theology classics today. Modern mystics live among us today. They don't all write poetry in isolated obscurity. In fact, you can find them on YouTube. Father Richard Rohr, an author and Franciscan friar, writes about mysticism and developing a close relationship to God through prayer. In June 2019 visit to Oprah's Super Bowl Sunday, Rohr shared his thoughts on how names for the higher powers such as God or Jesus are historically limited. The Universal Christ author posits that settling those names aside may open up one's relationship with a higher power. In an adapted excerpt from Rohr's A Spring Within Us, he says that mystic simply means one who has moved from mere belief systems to belonging systems to actual inner experience. All traditional spiritual at their mature levels agree that such movement is possible, desirable, and even available to everyone. Who can be a mystic? According to Starr, a mystic can be a bartender or a bus driver or a school teacher or a journalist. It's got nothing to do with your external life and everything to do with your internal experience. A mystic is an ordinary person who does ordinary things and experiences these moments of profound union with the source, Starr says. Another sign you may be a natural mystic, an extreme affinity for nature. That's why there's the term Mother Earth. For a lot of people with with mystical inclinations, it's a felt relationship with the earth, as a cherished loved one, as a relative. It's about fully embodying our humanity and our relationship with the natural world, but it's still a mystical experience, because we, our separate ego self, dissolves into the vast mystery of the one. We go over to lonerwolf.com. What is a mystic and 12 signs you're one? <laughs> by Elethea, August 28, 2022. There's certain mysterious, holy, and incandescent flame that burns at the center of every religion, spiritual path, and philosophy, and that is mysticism. 
from Buddhism and Hinduism to Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Taoism, and more. Mysticism is the golden thread that connects all of these religions together, despite how different each path's dogma may look on the surface. For those who identify as spiritual but not religious, mysticism is also at the heart of the spiritual journey, for it is the very heart, lifeblood, and impulse we carry within us to connect with the divine. Indeed, mysticism is at the very root of the spiritual awakening journey. Without mysticism, our lives feel dull, empty, directionless, meaningless, because there's no deeper impulse, no higher purpose. However, when we awaken our inner mystic, we find joy, play, vibrancy, truth, love, peace, and freedom again. Connecting with our inner mystic and walking the mystical path, therefore, is not just our basic human right, but our saving grace. We're living in a world now that is so divorced from mysticism, from what the sacred, numinous, and holy, that we're reaching record numbers of cases that I would call soul sickness or soul loss. Soul loss manifests as loneliness, depression, anxiety, paranoia, warmongering, chronic illnesses, violence of all kinds, and the desecration of our planet, our sacred mother, To reclaim your inner mystic is a radical act of love, one that is contrary to the savage consumerism, reductionistic scientism, and cold materialism that is running rampant in our world today. To be a mystic in this day and age is to be a rebel, to side with love, not hatred, to honor peace, not war, to live from the soul, not from the mind. So what is a mystic? According to this author, a mystic is a person who seeks to awaken, glimpse, and reclaim the innate spiritual oneness at the core of their being. In other words, a mystic is a spiritual seeker who is driven to surrender their ego and orients their whole lives towards deeply integrating the primordial truth that they are inseparable part of the divine. Mysticism, a word that became popular in the 18th century, stems from the Greek word mustis, which refers to someone who has been initiated into the mysteries. But mysticism itself has been around since the dawn of time. Right? Names a couple of famous mystics that we've already mentioned. There are numerous definitions of what a mystic is out there. But one that resonates strongly comes from the author and translator of mystics, as mentioned in the other article, Star, who writes, The way of the mystic is a way of surrender, or dying of self, false self, to be reborn in the true self, the God self, the radiant divine being we actually are. It's not that the old self, the personality, the ego, the stories we tell our lives is bad or wrong. It's that when we recognize the essential emptiness of our individual identity in light of the glorious gift of our interconnectedness with the one, independence becomes much less compelling. Nine Signs of Mystical Experience At some point in life, the majority of us are bound to have at least one mystical experience. 
Such tastes of self-realization, or what the Buddhists call satori, can be so vivid and so acute, they can change our lives forever. But how can we know whether we've had one or not? One place we can look is within the work of W.T. Stace, a philosopher of religion who defined the seven characteristics of mystical experience in the following way. All right. Unitary consciousness, i.e. the experience of oneness. Number two, non-spatial, non-temporal awareness, i.e. timelessness and spacelessness. Number three, sense of reality and objectivity, i.e. there is an unquestionable realness to the experience. It's not a mere hallucination. Four, blessedness and peace. Five, feelings of holy, sacred, or divine. Six, paradoxicality, i.e. there is a realization that the unity and interdependence of opposites, and also known non-dual awareness. Right? Seven, ineffability, or the ability to put into words the experience. It is an unfathomably paradigm-shifting. W.N. Pink, a physician and psychiatrist, in his assessment of the above characteristics, added two more. Number eight, transiency, and number nine, subsequent life improvement. In other words, the mystical experience might be temporary, but it creates deep positive ripple effects in our lives. Stages of the mystical journey. So, so much has been shared about mysticism through the ages, but one theologian and author, Evelyn Underhill, managed to distill this wisdom into five stages of mystical journey in her 1911 classic, Mysticism, A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness. Here are the stages that Underhill defined. Number one, awakening. Spiritual awakening can be understood as the sudden spark or dawning discovery that there's more to life than meets the eye. In the awakening stage, we begin to ask deeper questions about life and go in search of answers. The result of this soul-searching is what we must become lone wolves, distancing ourselves from our previous way of being and paving a totally new path for ourselves. 2. Purgation Purgation is a stage that involves becoming aware of all of our shadows and inner blockages that obscure the light of consciousness within us. This is a difficult stage because after the initial excitement of awakening or enlightening spark of self-awareness, we recognize the words of Jack Cornfield, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Inner work is demanded at this stage of the mystical journey, and its sole purpose is to purge or dissolve everything standing in our way of mystical unity and oneness. And yet, as laborious as the purgation and inner work process can be, it is required to find the hidden jewel that is always and forever inside of us. In the words of various mystics and sages, purgation is necessary because it helps us to realize the following. He and he become one entity, Abulafia Judaism. The kingdom of heaven is within you, Christianity. Look within, you are the Buddha, Buddhism. Atman 
or Atman, individual consciousness, and Brahman, universal consciousness, are one, Hinduism. By understanding the self, all the universe is known, the Upanishads. He who knows himself knows the Lord, Muhammad, Islam. Number three, illumination. Once we have done a lot of deep work in the purgation stage, we come to taste exhilarating moments of illumination. For example, we might reach deep states of enlightened awareness within meditation, experience a sense of unification in nature, deep love for others and self, and even have a spontaneous moment of bliss. However, the illumination stage is short-lived and doesn't mark a permanent shift in consciousness. The intense high of illumination, also known as an experience of ego death, often leads to an intense low of the next stage. Number four, the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul can be best depicted by a picture, that of a desolate wasteland where everything feels lifeless, meaningless, and devoid of the divine. 14th century Italian poet, writer, and mystic Dante Alighieri described the dark night perfectly in his epic poem, Inferno, the Divine Comedy. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark forest, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Ah me, how hard a thing it is to say. What is this forage, savage, rough, and stern? which his very thought renews the fear. So bitter it is, death is little more, but of good to treat, which there I found, speak will I of other things I saw there. St. John of the Cross, who coined the word Dark Knight of the Soul back in the 16th century, and titled a work by the same name, described why this stage happens. No matter how much an individual's do through their own efforts, they cannot actively purify themselves enough to be disposed in the least degree for the divine union of the perfection of love. God must take over and purge them in that fire that is dark for them. As painful and wretched as this stage may be, it is just that, a stage, and it leads to the final part of the mystical journey. Number five, union. After one has experienced the death and rebirth within the dark night of the soul, which we can see as necessary but painful initiation, the final stage embodies all that the mystic has ever longed for, divine union. Union is the shift in awareness, the expansion of consciousness, the attainment of nirvana, enlightenment, unity, non-dual awareness, and the kingdom of heaven, that is often written about in mystical literature. Within union, the mystic is no longer trapped in the limitations of small, illusionatory ego-self, but recognizes directly and permanently the I am or the God-self that has forever and always been there, yet was simply veiled. Unlike the illumination stage, union is a total transformation and liberation, not a temporary glimpse into the divine. Twelve Signs of the Modern Mystic while the external appearance of mystics has changed through the ages, from robes-wearing monks and nuns to fez-wearing Middle Eastern poets, the same essence applies to all mystics, no matter what race, religion, or time period they're from. Here are 12 signs of the modern mystic. 
You find it hard to fit in or belong in this world and crave to find some kind of home. You feel dissatisfied with your life, no matter how much material success you experience. You feel aimless and lost and feel called to create a meaningful change on this planet. You feel disillusioned by various religions, self-help, and spiritual paths. You intensely crave a God, divine-filled life. You've undergone a spiritual awakening, kundalini awakening, or a dark night of the soul. You feel everything intensely. You crave solitude and enjoy introspection. You've experienced spiritual crisis of some sort. Ever since childhood, you've been a deep-thinking and contemplative person. 11. You long to unite with something greater than you and sense that the ego is a sham. 12. You've had a trans transitory glimpses of oneness, illumination, or enlightenment. At the heart of the modern mystic, and all mystics really, is the burning desire to reconnect with the soul and unite the spirit. Whether this deep spiritual thirst is fulfilled through religion or some other path is beside the point. As the quote goes by Zen Buddhist monk, Kuyu, many paths lead from the foot of the mountain, but at the peak we all gaze at the single bright moon. A quick word about mysticism and mental illness. A psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight by Joseph Campbell. The above quote from writer and mythologist Joseph Campbell perfectly highlights the fine line between mysticism and mental illness. There is a reason why inner work as an initiatory process, such as cultivation of self-love, mental harmony through meditation, and physical groundedness through yoga is needed. Without creating internal space, it's easy to go from neurotic to psychotic when faced with experiences too big for the ego to handle. For someone prone to intense anxiety, depression, or other mental imbalances, the sudden experience of the vast primordial space of oneness can be too much to handle. The result may shut down of the psyche, intense disorganization in thoughts and feelings, nihilistic bouts of ex existential crisis, and other issues. Whether mental illness such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, and so on are actually spiritual illnesses is an entire debate itself that would require a whole book or more to examine. But what we do know is that there is such a thing as spiritual emergency, where someone has gone through the rigors of spiritual practice, is dropped into the deep end too fast and too soon. And the result is what mainstream society immediately dismisses as mental illness. Some simple paths for practicing mysticism, spend a lot of time in nature, make space for solitude and silence, contemplate the words of mystics, cultivate the qualities of the heart, less is more. The eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me, and my eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love, by Meister Eckhart. The above quote by medieval theologian and mystic Meister Eckhart perfectly summarizes all that it is to be mystic, oneness, deep knowing, and love. It was also Eckhart who said, theologians may quarrel, but the mystics of the world speak the same language. The fact that mysticism is so widespread, yet largely buried beneath rigid and fundamentalist dogma in our modern world, 
brings a sense of optimism, promise, and direction. The reality is that to be human is to have an inextinguishable craving for mysticism. All right, very cool article. Let's take a break. So in this last segment of the show, I wanted to include some reports from what people experience on both shamanic and mystical experiences. So with that being said, let's jump right into the first one. This one comes from sacredstream.org, and it starts. The following is the text of Judith's first journey to the lower world to meet her power animal. It is presented with her permission. I'm going to a sinkhole or pond, which is sunk down in the ground near where I grew up. I'm walking into the water. It is very dark. I start to go down. I'm just dropping into the sinkhole. I see lots of tree roots and things sticking out. They brush me a bit. Looking down, it's very dark. I have stopped falling. I'm sitting cross-legged. Looking up, I see a dark hole above me, like a cave. I'm in a place with narrow ceiling, four feet above ground. There is a dirt floor. There are grass and stones. I am on all fours. I start crawling through the cave. It is not so dark that I cannot see. There is some light. I don't know where it is coming from. There is a windy tunnel. It opens to a cavern. There is a lake at the bottom of the cavern. There is a boat. There are murals and hieroglyphs on the walls. I get into the boat. It starts floating out into the lake. I put my hands in the water. It is very dark and a dark navy blue. There's a creature in the water. It looks like a seal. It is coming up to the boat. It's got big, dark eyes. It is floating around the boat. It is grayish in color. This is my power animal. The seal is swimming ahead of the boat. Somehow the boat is following. It is swimming on top of the water. I'm not sure what to think of it. I'm going towards what could be sunlight or moonlight. The lake is narrowing. There's an archway, not a tunnel which opens and the water flows out through it like a river. It is moonlight and forest. There are tall, tall trees like cedars. The seal is swimming around the boat and it pushes it over to the side. There is a path. I walk along a path beside the river and leave the boat behind. The seal follows me. We come to some kind of cliff. There is a waterfall. I am standing on a cliff on a mountain overlooking a city. It is nighttime with lots of lights. It is not artificial light, but candlelight and firelight. I stop. I sit down on a rock and look at the city. The seal stays in the water and moves towards the edge and looks with me. I am not frightened. It is not somewhere I have been. I get the feeling that someone was here before me, but I have not seen them. I get up and walk along the path. I get back into the boat. The seal leads the boat back through the archway into the cavern and into the middle of the lake. It swims up beside the boat and almost gets into the front of the boat. It looks at me. It is a seal, but the face is almost more human than seal. It is trying to tell me something. It gets back into the water and swims circles around the boat. It disappears into the dark, swimming half in, half out of the water. I go back into the tunnel, back into the hole. I'm going back up and coming out of the water. 
I am back on the ground and out of the sinkhole, and I am on the path, walking. As you can see, the shamanic journey shares some characteristics with dreams. In both realms, the images in the main form of, is the main form of communication. Players in both realms understand what is asked of them and how to communicate without necessarily resorting to words. There is much more information contained within a simple interaction than would appear if actions were literally only taken literally, only literally. Forms can shift without logic, but the form shift seems utterly logical at the same time. The fact that the seal's face seemed to be human part of the time does not seem illogical in the context of the journeying. This shape-shifting and form-shifting is common in non-ordinary re reality, and I'm sure there are more reasons for this than I understand. But some explanations lie in the fact that spirits or energies use the form or image to communicate are not always in complete control of the world or form and they tend to choose forms that suit the moment and fill the need of communication in the present without so much regard to future form as a basis of communication. Also, more information could be conveyed in a shape or form shifting, so spirits or energies tend to use these changes to add complexity and shading to the information they are trying to convey. Right, let's go to the next one. Her question was, how do I process other people's energies so I am s remain safe without shutting other people out? This question was born out of her perception that she had begun to shut herself off from interaction with people in order to preserve her physical energy. She was not happy with the solution, was trying to find a new way of dealing with energy in her relationship to others. She reports, I'm going back down into the sinkhole again through the water, down the hole. I'm at the bottom now. I'm in a narrow tunnel, crawling through the tunnel. I'm back in the cavern. There are some stone steps down to the water. There's the boat. I get back into the boat and sit down. There are two sets of hieroglyphs on the wall. There are dark blue ones, which were the ones that were there before. And there are same-sized bright red ones underneath. I'm floating in the middle of the lake. The seal pops up in front of the boat of the boat. It is floating on its back. I am glad to see it. It does not frighten me. It does not want to be frightened. Or it does not want me to be frightened. It is playing so I won't be frightened. I am actually frustrated. I want to be in the water, not in the boat. The seal lets me know it is okay to go in the water. I take off my clothes and jump into the water with the seal. It swims around me, not circling but just so I feel comfortable with it. I swim over to a rock, which is in a series of rocks coming out from the shore of the lake. They're smooth and rounded, and I get onto the very tip of one. The seal swims back and forth in front of me. I ask the question. The seal swims further out into the water. It starts swimming with half of its body out of the water. It is glowing. It is though I can see an aura around it. It is a white light about two feet out from its body. Then it dips under the water. It swims off to the left and floats on its back. This time it's got a yellow light. There is a yellow donut-shaped ring around its body, about one and a half feet away from its belly. What are you doing, I think? It is trying to teach me to see the energy so I know what kind of energy it is. It swims still on his back, 
It floats up towards me. I'm supposed to touch the yellow light. I put my hands six inches into the light. It makes me feel a bit agitated. But what I can do is use the energy coming from my hands to push back on the aura from the seal. When I push it back, I feel safe. I can see the energy that comes off my hand when I do that. The seal comes out, again with top of its body out of the water. There is a bluish white light fully around it. I can see under the water, or I can't see under the water. It is too dark. It comes closer. I push my hands onto it. It doesn't feel threatening. I can feel where it begins. The feeling is the seal is trying to show me how it can transfer beneficial energy to me. I don't have to protect myself against this energy. It does not deplete me. I put my hand through the aura and touch the seal skin with my hand to say thanks. I want to give it some of my energy without feeling threatened by that. It feels very, very good. A good, loving feeling is going back and forth between us. The red hieroglyphs are doing something. It is more intense now. I've noticed them again. The seal is swimming with its head out of the water, looking at me moving away. It fades into the darkness. I get up and walk back a narrow tunnel and crawl along. I'm going up through the hole and out of the water. I'm on the path walking out of the sinkhole. The information Judas was given here by the seal was profound, to say the least. She was so lucky to have been given the visceral understanding in almost an instant of the futility of trying to block negative energy with shields or walls. The lesson of drawing on her life force, of reconnecting and revitalizing the life force from within to push out negative energy is invaluable. All right, hopping right back into the stories. We go over to actualize.org, where their forums have a thread on shamanic holotropic trip reports. The first one is from Jed. I did 20 minutes of shamanic holotropic breathwork following Leo's guidelines in his video covering the topic. For me, I had three occasions where I saw this amazing light glowing brighter above my eyes, which was a white kind of color. I'm pretty certain I could feel my brain in my head as though it was a muscle organ surrounded by fluids, which I've never felt in everyday life to that intensity. I also had a far greater consciousness of my spinal cord and where I had stored energy in my solar plexus and shoulders. To me though, I felt some kind of purging as Leo spoke about, but it wasn't near as terrifying as I previously expected it to be. This was my first time and plan on doing it again and feel as though it was the tip of the iceberg. I had slightly similar experience doing kundalini yoga, but it wasn't as juicy as this for me. Having created a meditation schedule each morning helped me to lay through this better than I expected in my opinion. I did this in silence, which I found to be fine, but will experiment with tribal drums, etc. can only imagine where psychedelic could take you and feel a small sense of awakening slightly greater than what I experienced through using kundalini yoga. I look forward to practicing this technique for longer, and it definitely felt like therapy. All right, we hop over to 
shroomery.org where someone tells us about their trip. Their shamanic retreat, trip report, first ceremony with ayahuasca. The ceremony was beyond beautiful, Be beautiful in its dynamics, the way it was treated, the way it built around helping people and nothing but that, genuine and beautiful. It was beautiful in the way it healed everyone in some way or another. One guy mourned in one hour more than he did in the last six months since his death of his brother. It was all about love. Everything had love at its core. Love for oneself, for family, for friends, and for everyone in the ceremony. Although we only just met for the first time two days ago. I personally felt and cried for the issues a lot of them were going through. The first shot I took had a mild effect. It took me to a familiar place, one that I go to every time on shrooms. It was comforting to be in a familiar place after all the anticipation built on other people's accounts and stuff I had read and watched online. The experience was very short-lived, though, and I was completely sober an hour or so after it kicked in. Nothing profound was encountered. I also found myself wanting to keep my eyes open most of the time, because although it was a familiar place, I sensed it could be a discomforting one, and I found comfort in staring at the fire. I took the second shot, and when they asked if I wanted to, and that's when the magic happened. Family, family, family. This shall be one of the main priorities in my life from now onwards. It has been for years, but although there was a lot of love and support from my side, the appreciation and love from theirs, it still had some sort of emotional depth missing, especially with my mother. My mom used to cheat on my dad, and when I was a kid, and she used to take me with her to meet her boyfriend, or whatever the hell he was at the time. I loved her throughout my life, but as I grew up, I found a layer of despise covering that love. Although I never let it carried with my actions or the way I treated her, there was definitely something wrong in that relationship. Last night, I forgave her, and a recurring picture during my last two hours of the journey was me and her dancing to the drumming and chanting of the shamanic angels that led the ceremony. I have nothing but love and respect for my father, who I shall honor that love and respect further by doing as much as I can, few years as happy as they can be. I also forgave my own shortcomings. I cried so hard for their existence, but I think it was a starting point being born for my acceptance of them. I'm bigger than my shortcomings, and I understand it requires strength and courage to outgrow them in my head. I will try to make helping others the philosophy of my life from here onwards, not just helping those in need, but to see all relationships in different light. They say everyone is fighting their own battle, and the ultimate goal is happiness and self-fulfillment. I will try to help my friends achieve happiness, be it through a simple conversation or something bigger. I will try to help my clients achieve their business goals to reach their personal life ones, and so forth. I will also try my best to not consume more than what I need. It's a toxic human emotion, and I shall try ridding myself of it.
I also realize that at the core of all actions, be them harmful or beneficial, is simply the motive of self-assurance. People can unfortunately be weak, and I shall try to approach or avoid reacting negatively to re negative acts or words that come my way. For the person behind these acts or words is acting so to reassure him or herself. Although the approach is obviously wrong, everyone is scared. They just don't know. And fear pollutes their lives in more ways than one might think. Compassion is both sad and beautiful, a blessing and a curse. My heart breaks for Marco, a 60-plus-year-old gentleman who is here to try to be healed from Parkinson's disease. His wife, a beautiful creature who is here to drink ayahuasca with him and stay by his side as an angel, I'm glad to have met. My heart breaks for Henry, for losing his brother and best friend, for those who lost parents growing up, for others who were sexually abused by others, for those who found their loved ones becoming their worst enemies overnight, for those who lost their children and are struggling to fill the void, for those whose society was the creator and supplier of their addictions, and for everyone fighting a battle wanting to heal, my heart is with you. The most valuable lesson I've learned so far was to start living outside of my head and into the present moment, because it is clear to me now that it is the most significant reason for my unhappiness. May everyone else have the power or will to do so as well. We go over to ericgodsey.com, where he has a blog, and he tells us about his Peru trip. This trip report is going to be the longest I've written, because this trip is the longest I've experienced. This is part one of two. I did my best to keep it as short as possible while conveying my experience. I also did my best to structure it and write it in a way that makes the reading as easy as possible. Preface Ritual The ritual experience I was invited to partake in is called the Huachuma Masada. It is a week-long ceremony recreated from an ancient Peruvian shamanic lineage called the Shavan. The magician masquerading as human who reserved and manifested this ceremony for us goes by the name Don Howard Lawler. The Huachuma Masada is comprised of three on days where we drank the plant medicine, Huachuma, with the rest day in between each for integration and recovery. At the end of the last on day, we snorted other plant medicine teacher called Vilca, which is 5-Mayo-DMT, the most potent psychedelic on the planet. It cannot be understood. Witnessing Don Howard manifest this ritual and use it as a psychedelic container has forever changed how I view ingesting these plants. I've been exploring altered states of consciousness for years now, and none of them have had the kind of ritual sacredness I experienced at Spirit Quest Sanctuary. In my wilder moments, I get to thinking about alchemists and the Philosopher's Stone. The central myth of the alchemist is that if one just got the chemistry right, one could create a stone that had the ability to transmute any material into gold. Well, I think the human nervous system is the philosopher's stone. I think ritual and ceremony is the alchemist's chemistry. 
but it is our experience that is the material we turn from ordinary to divine, from crude to gold, from profane to sacred. And my week in the jungle has sparked in me a new desire to practice this kind of alchemy, to find and create the rituals in my life that will transform the ordinary into the sacred. The teachers and the structure. So this trip report makes sense. I'm going to introduce some plants and core ideas about the Muachuma Masada ritual that Don Howard put us through so that you know what the hell I'm talking about. Huachuma. It's pronounced Wachuma. Wachuma is the original name of the plant, most known as San Pedro. When the Spaniards came to South America and witnessed the amazing changes in consciousness this plant could create, they named it after St. Peter, who is the gatekeeper of heaven. Let that marinate for a moment. The active ingredient in Wachuma is mescaline. It is consumed as an oral drink. We took Wachuma every other day for six days, totaling in three ceremonies. It lasts between 8 and 12 hours. Vilka, the other primary plant teacher involved in the Wachuma Masada, is Vilka. Vilka literally translates as the sacred, and it was used by the ancient Amazonian tribe, the Chavin, for thousands of years as a shamanic teacher on how to die and move into the next realm of existence. The active ingredient in Vilka is 5-MAO-DMT, NNDMT and bufotenin. It is consumed as a nasal snuff. We did it once on the last Masada. It lasts between 50 to 80 minutes. Masada. I'm going to be honest and let you know that my understanding of what a Masada is, is still feels fuzzy, and I encourage anyone who reads this, who may know more than I, to reach out and help me fortify this section. As far as I understand it, the Masada is the spiritual theme of the day. We had three Masadas, the three days that we drank Wachuma. First Masada, Yakumama, Mother Spirit of the Water. Second Masada, Sachamama, Mother Spirit of the Earth. And third Masada, Waramama, Mother Spirit of the Air. Mesa, Mesa literally means table, and Don Howard Lawler had the dopest table I've ever seen. The Mesa is where we started each Masada, is where we drank Wachuma each day, and it's where we snuffed the Vilka that obliterated my ego for 80 minutes. On it, he has ancient artifacts from other temples, skulls of other shamans whose lineage he carries onward, and it will likely be the table his skull will rest on after he passes and his daughter carries on his legacy. The offering and request. At the start of each Masada, as we were standing in front of the Mesa, we were asked by Don Howard to offer our life's mission to the Mesa and Wachuma, and that if we'd like, we may ask for something in return. This is an important part of the ritual. It's where we get to clarify our life's purpose, and it's where we get to set our intention. I love this part of the dance, and I'm going to make it a pattern I carry on in all future uses. Day Zero. Awareness. 
There is a motive in shamanism that the medicine begins working on you the moment you decide that you will do it. For me, this was the most apparent, the day before leaving for Peru. A bunch of my beautiful friends organized a large going-away dinner for this version of my ego story. Most of them knew the reputation of Vilca for psychologically killing the individual, and they were there to say goodbye. Dinner was amazing, and something very weird happened. While having a conversation with my friend Cliff, I recalled my most traumatic childhood memory effortlessly and knew it would be what I'd confront on Vilca. My spiritual trauma. When I was seven or eight, after having a poor version of Christianity introduced to me, I began thinking about heaven and its promises while I lay in bed at night. I got to thinking about what eternity meant, what it really was. I imagined going to a place in the clouds where all the best people lived. There was only love and happiness, and that we lived there forever. I'd really try to think that was forever was, and I would cry. I cried because of what thinking about forever made me feel. It is a feeling I can't quite wrap language around, but it was a feeling that hurts. The closest I can get to it is some kind of divine futility. Maybe something like what a character in a Greek tragedy feels if they witness that their fate is set. The idea of forever wounded my young mind in a way I still don't quite understand. And after I'd cry for 20 or 30 minutes, I'd pray to God that I believed sentenced me to this fate to please help me stop thinking about it so I could sleep. This happened a few nights a week for a month, and then it faded into my subconscious. The insight at dinner, however, is how I never connected this fear to my adolescent atheism. It was so obvious now that drove my obsession with cultivating my rationality, logic, and debating skills. As a teenager, I was an atheist on fire. I read the philosophers, honed the skepticism, and sought out any who claimed they believed and would debate them. The teenage Eric thought he was a grand illuminator of truth, but what I was realizing at dinner was that I was actually existentially wounded seven-year-old, desperately seeking shelter from eternity under the hood of my growing prefrontal cortex. Something in me knew that my week in Peru was going to bring me face-to-face -face with the abyss, with eternity again that I'd need to put down my shield of logic and stare the dragon in the eyes. The difference between a man and a king is that a king does not look away. That's from Lady of the Lake, a King Arthur myth. Then after dinner, a second serendipitous pre-Peru departure healing happened. I ended up getting a ride home from a woman I had just recently met at dinner because my friends wanted to continue their night. Chance had it, and Carl Jung called the chance his god, that he was trained gestalt therapist. And to keep his brief, she helped uncover more core ego Eric beliefs that became major themes of my trip to Peru. She helped me see that since my sports injuries, I began to fear my body and retreated to my mind. In high school, I was just good enough at basketball and just dumb enough about the state of the world to truly believe I had a chance to play professional basketball. I decided my entire young life to this goal, and as a junior, I tore my right rotator cuff and never fully recovered. 
I resisted the evidence for fear for a few years, but slowly it dawned on my young ego that this dream was dead. It took years to realize that since my injury, I was condemned by my body. Blamed it on some level of not being good enough. It sounds cliche to write that now, but when I was in the car, I heard myself say aloud, I'm afraid of my body. Something significant shifted. It was like, now that I finally said it out loud, the healing process could begin. My emotional trauma. She also, with the surgical insight, helped me realize that the major scar on my heart. She noticed that a motive in my self-talk is the will to want to perceive or see everything. And she mentioned that maybe a sign of something hurt you that you didn't see coming when you were younger. And instantly, the weight of truth of her words caused a deep exhale to leave my body. I thought about the girl I was in love with in high school. On the summer night before senior year, after four years of a relationship swaying between lovers and friends, we kissed for the first time. It was one of the most emotionally charged moments in my life. And then she pulled away, looked me in the eyes, and spoke four words that destroyed my ability to love for a long time. She said, I don't feel anything. In hindsight, I love and respect her honesty, but in that moment, my heart had never felt that degree of pain. As she drove me home, I couldn't speak. I couldn't feel. I told her for my own healing. I couldn't talk to her, and for years I didn't forgive her. However, eventually I did, as life put me in her shoes and other relationships. After eating mushrooms a couple times, and as I developed a little, I understood her. With complete understanding came forgiveness. But the scar remained. I'm very hesitant with giving romantic love. I overflow with love for my friends, but when it comes to romance, I tread very carefully. I knew this would be something Wachuma would bring up. So in one night, the medicine brought to the surface my major spiritual trauma my major physical trauma, and my major emotional trauma, and also each of the coping mechanisms I developed in response to those traumas. In the face of eternity, I hid behind rationality. In the wake of physical injuries, I learned to suppress my body's energy. In the aftermath of romantic rejection, I became hyper-obsessed with being able to read people and only loving when it felt safe. The positive is that my rationality has taught me discernment, Suppressing my body has connected me to my awareness that transcends my impulses, and my ability to read people has helped me become a competent psychologist. The negative is that my rationality has made me blind to a great degree of human experience. My suppressing the body has disconnected me from the primal masculine power I'm capable of manifesting, and my need to read people has kept me from cultivating love with others when reciprocation wasn't certain. Wachuma and Vilka, the great plant teachers I was going to visit, knew these were classes my soul was enrolling in, and the curriculum was ready. Day 1. Arrival. After a three-hour bus ride from Austin to Houston, a six-hour flight from Houston to Lima, sleeping overnight in Lima, flying for 90 minutes from Lima to Iquitos, taking a bus for 30 minutes from the airport to the river, then taking a boat 30 minutes down the Amazon River, we arrived at Spirit Quest Sanctuary. The major theme of this full day of traveling across the six-hour flight from Houston to Lima, 
I never flown on an international flight, and one we were on had a television screen on the back of every seat. We had the ability to watch from a great selection of movies, and this presented an opportunity I've never had before. I was able to see in real time dozens and dozens of people select the mist they wanted to step into. It was such a beautiful metaphor for how we all live our lives. We each are like humans in the seat, peering through a very specific lens, watching a myth, thick slice of the world we all share. We project all of our emotions and desires through the little lens we have on the characters and stories we see. I chose Interstellar as my in-flight myth. It reminded me of why I do the medicine work I do. It all comes down to children I hope to have one day. All this work, all this reading, writing, and learning, I do it for my children. I'm grateful I got to be reminded of this as I descended upon the jungle. Day 2. Water Masada. Day of the Mind. Today is the first Masada. This was the first time I get to witness Don Howard in his role as shaman. I was blown away. Outside of the ceremony, Don Howard does a good job pretending to be an old man from Kentucky. He is not that. Whatever he is remembers how to be that. Who he really is comes alive the moment you step into the Maloka, the room that has the mesa we drink Wachuma at. When we are in the Maloka, the timeless shamanic king inside him comes out in full force, and he becomes the absolute epitome of ageless masculine grace. As part of the ritual, he has everyone sit around the mesa. All the women are on the left side of the mesa, and all the men are on the right. First, he blesses the mesa with tobacco, then with chuma. After this, he begins to pour the amount he fits each person. But before he does this, he pauses, slowly turns to the person he is going to pour for, and looks at them in the eyes with an intensity I have never encountered in my entire life. No human has ever looked at me like this. When he looked at me, I did not sense a man looking at me. There was no man. What looked at me was a force of nature, something ancient and powerful and massive. It was as if a legion of guardian spirits and shamans sat directly behind his eyes, channeling their power through him. Even as I write this, the rationalist in me feels I'm exaggerating, and yet my heart knows I'm not even close to grasping the power of his stare. He saw what he saw in me and poured my cup, and as I walked in... To the front of the mesa, my entire field of vision blurred, except the jaguar poster that hung above the mesa. I looked into her eyes and offered my mission statement for my life. First Masada Offering I'm trying my best to manifest the kingdom of heaven. For more on what this means, I explain it in my ketamine trip report here. First Masada Request I had an elaborate plan for what I wanted to ask, but as I stood at the foot of the mesa, it didn't feel right to ask for anything other than truth. So that is what I asked for, truth. It took about an hour for everyone else to get their Don Howard soul stare down and cut poor. But once we all did, he told us to get our things and meet at the boats. Boat ride out. Don Howard knows what he's doing. Each masada after drinking, 
He has all of us get onto motorboats that glide us along the Amazon River for 30 to 40 minutes while the Wachuma begins to enter consciousness. These boat rides became the place where my deepest thoughts and visions for the week occurred. This first boat ride out gave me a deep philosophical gift that I'll offer here, but may be interesting to only a few. I'm obsessed in this life with understanding the nature of human psyche as much as I can before I die. On this first boat ride, I had insight. The primary will of the psyche is the will to adaptation. As the stability of the organism reaches to a certain point, consciousness is able to manifest. Once consciousness manifests, a second will begins to form, and it's the will to grow. My mind offered the term will to ascension. This is the drive we all have to grow or develop. A metaphor for this idea is that the psyche is like an anthropomorphic ship. At first, it only concerned with having enough structural integrity to float. This explains why infants will learn any kind of programming if it helps it adapt at all, like fearing authority or hiding behind mother, etc. But once it does, its next will is to move towards some new point, a metaphysically higher point. As long as the structure is stable enough, the secondary will drive the organism. But if stability begins to break down, the will to ascend evaporates, and the concern, again, is stability. As you can see, the first Masada was a lot of thinking. I was defending myself from the experience of analyzing and thinking. We arrive at the tribe. Finally, we landed. I found myself repeating, will to adaptation, will to ascension. Don Howard has brought us to an indigenous Amazonian tribe to see how they lived, to witness their traditions, and to buy arts and crafts from them. I was feeling Wachuma very clearly now. The effects are hard to describe, but I'll do my best. If you imagine your perception is like a movie theater goer, that the screen is what you visually perceive, and that the person watching the film is your internal judge who comments and judges what's on the screen, I might be able to explain. Most psychedelics notably alter the way the projector creates the way the movie looks, and it can make the person watching the movie very giggly or very afraid. Wachuma is different. The movie projector seems completely accurate, but it was a little brighter, a little cleaner, and a little more glittery. And the moviegoer, he felt much, much more clear, like he's been meditating, fasting, and having a need in the world. Things felt clear, and I felt committed to try and uphold my request at the Mesa to witness truth. At some indeterminate point after my spiritual class with the dog, the tribe we came to visit began its presentation. I grew up in Wisconsin for most of my childhood, and once a year at my school, the local Native American tribe would come and show us its traditional dances and customs. It was good friends. I was good friends with one of the boys who would transform for, from schoolmate to exotic feathered drummer and dancer. I'd watch his face during the ceremonies. I didn't have words for it then, but what I saw was the same face I'd made when my mom asked me to perform something in front of her and her friends while all I wanted to do was go in my room and play Pokemon. 
As the tribe's chief began sharing his tribe's story, I saw passion and love, and a man actively overcoming his fear of speaking. But as his speech gave way to the children performing their dance, their energy in their faces reminded me of my friend back in Wisconsin. These children were in, in an impossible spot, one that has consumed the West for many years. They have their culture, their tradition, and their myths, but they've tasted cell phones, computers, and mainstream media myths. And there is something in the modern luxury that a tradition devour. The feeling of the sacred has withered in the wake of modernity. These children are stark, shimmering symbols of Nietzsche's God is dead, and we have killed him. Most cultures, rituals, myths, and gods have lost their visceral connection, and I saw it in these kids. All this being said, they enjoyed themselves. They danced, they sung, we all joined, it was beautiful. Their ceremony isn't completely dead. It just is trying to compete with the techno-orgy the West has produced. Worthy side note, at one point in the tribe's presentation, they began to play drums, and Aubrey started dancing. What began some fancy footwork and spinning turned into him ecstatically dancing in the center of all of us with a fervor I have never ever witnessed. The dance was legendary, and I have no doubt that when the final period is placed on Aubrey's life story, he's going to be a legend too. I've never met someone who has chosen to take on as many burdens as he has, who gives as much as he does to as many people as he does, who has a demon on his back as large as he does, that he's learned to tame. It was an honor to witness. All right, that was just a little glimpse into one of their stories. And it goes on for a while. Uh, feel free to read that. Read more at ericgodsey.com about his Peru trip report. Sciencing the Mystical, the trickery of the psychedelic trip report from Tand F Online. Science has caught wind of mysticism once again, operationalizing metrics from the writings of perennial philosophers, psychopharmacologists, are using psychedelics in a laboratory context to reliably induce mystical experiences. These experiences are scored along such dimensions as unity, noesis, transcendence of space-time, and ineffability. How are we read to this moment? I draw on data from the ethnography of psychedelic science and take cue from Walter Benjamin's treatment of the threshold in convolute O of the Arcades project to identify apophatic narratives of trickery that contrast with positive knowledge prominent in sciencing of the mystical experience. Read as apophatic labor, Psychedelic trip reports reveal how significant of the mystical encounter lies not in the point-like efficacy in transforming the subject, but precisely the doubts, contradictions, and aporias involved in the writing out of their experience. The psychedelic experiment experience is a temporary altered state of consciousness induced by a psychedelic compound. While psychedelic altered states are highly specific to particular compounds, the range of subjective effects that people experience is wide. There are certain features of the psychedelic experience that occur for most people. These include significant changes in perception, emotion, and cognition. 
Additionally, when set and setting are controlled for, such as in a clinical trial, psychedelics have been found to reliably induce mystical-type experiences. The ph phenomenology of the psychedelic mystical experience, particularly as described in the clinical studies, aligns with descriptions of classic introvertive mystical-type experience as described by Western scholars, such as William James, Walter Stace, and Ralph Hood. For example, the Mystical Experience Questionnaire, a self-report measure that has been used to assess the effects of psychedelics in research studies, measures six components of the psychedelic-induced mystical experience, including a sense of unity or oneness, transcendence of time and space, deeply felt positive mood, sense of awesomeness, reverence and wonder, meaningfulness of psychological and philosophical insight, and ineffability and paradoxicality. Currently, most clinical research on psychedelics has focused on these more abstract or introverted phenomenal features of the psychedelic mystical experience. All right, we go over to angelfire.com, where they describe shamanic trance states presented by The Wandering. In order to journey to the other dimensions of existence, a shaman induces an altered state of consciousness in himself similar to a state of self-hypnosis, called a state of flow. While in this state of flow, or shamanic trance, he is in complete control. He is able to take his consciousness and subtle bodies into non-physical reality, where he visits the heavens or hells of existence, communicates with and controls spirits, gains information, retrieves souls, and makes subtle changes in reality, which may affect the physical world. Properties of the shamanic altered state of consciousness are, number one, there is a sense of egolessness. It is as if a person feels as if they are merging with people and objects around them, as if they are in a single state of consciousness. Number two, a distorted sense of time and space. There is a breakdown of normal boundaries. Intuition takes over in situations where a rational approach was the norm operating model. Number three, extraordinary psychic or other mental powers. Number four, an intense and accurate sensitivity of the emotional states of others. Number five, a trance-like state often called the state of flow. In the state of flow, you feel as if you have actually become one with the activity you are focused on. You may lose track of your body, emotions, sense of time, and even your physical location. When you are giving everything you can to a particular vision or challenge, you become free of fear and anxiety. You have no room in your consciousness for boredom. Many people who function in this way speak of it as a drug-free high that comes from the rhythm that seems to be a part and parcel of working at this 100% level. Many people relate to this to activate activities such as tying your shoes to something more complicated such as driving a car. There's an automatic pilot effect. When tying your shoe, you must just tie your shoe. When driving, you know where you are going and you're driving effectively and safely, yet your mind is not intensely focused on the road. This is still attention to detail and focus, but it is different than intense concentration. It is not the type of concentration that creates great mental strain. 
The easiest way to describe state of flow is that you function at a level of excellence with ease. The lighter trance states feel like those times when you are reading a book or watching television or a movie, and you are so engrossed that you are not aware of your surroundings. The deeper trances feel similar to how you feel when you are first waking up in the morning. You are aware that you are awake. Your imagery is vivid and dreamlike, and you feel relaxed, calm, and good. The ability to attain and control a trance is a result of cumulative conditioning and mental training. A weightlifter trains himself by practicing daily. He begins by lifting relatively light weights and progresses to heavier and heavier ones. Eventually, he is able to lift a 200-pound weight above his head with relative ease. By working in this manner, he has trained his muscles to respond according to his will. After he has reached his goal, he can maintain the ability by practicing only two or three times per week. If he stops practicing entirely, his muscles will gradually lose their conditioning and strength, and after a time, he will no longer be able to lift the weight. By reestablishing a routine of practice, he will bring his ability back to where it was. This same principle applies to the state of trance. You train your mind to respond in accordance with your will in order to produce the ability to develop a deep trance. This is done by daily practice. It may take some time and effort to establish that ability, but once you have it, you will be able to maintain it by practicing only once or twice per week. If you stop practicing entirely, your ability will gradually lessen. Like the weightlifter, you will need to begin a more regular practice in order to reestablish your abilities. When you go into any trance, you will gradually progress from ordinary consciousness to deeper levels. It's convenient to have these means measuring the depth of your trance. So the paragraphs that follow outline some of the symptoms found at various depths. For conventional sake, I'm divided that the depths of trance into four major sections, and using terms borrowed from the hypnotic sciences, called them the hypnodial, light, medium, and deep trance states. right? Hypnodial trance. You progress from ordinary consciousness through the following steps. Feeling physically relaxed, drowsy, your mind becomes relaxed. You feel apathetic or indifferent. Your arms and legs start to feel heavy. You may have a tendency to stare blankly, and you have a disinclination to move your limbs. As you border this and the light trance, your breathing becomes slower and deeper and your pulse rate slows. Number two, light trance. You progress to a reluctance to move, speak, think, or act. You may experience some involuntary switching of your mouth or jaw, and sometimes of the eyes. You will feel a heaviness throughout your entire body and a partial feeling of detachment. You may also experience visual illusions. As you border this in the medium trance, you recognize that you are in trance, but you may find that feeling hard to describe. Number three, medium trance. You definitely recognize that you are in trance and may experience partial amnesia unless you consciously choose not to. By giving yourself the proper suggestions, you can make any part of your body insensitive to pain, can experience the illusions of touching, tasting, and smelling, you will be more sensitive to variations in atmospheric pressure and temperature changes. As you border this in deep trance, you may experience complete catalepsy of your limbs or body. 
In other words, if your limbs and body positions are changed, you will leave them in the new position until they are changed again. Number four, deep trance. You can, go, you can have the ability to open your eyes without affecting the trance. You will also have the ability to control such body functions as heartbeat, blood pressure, digestion, and body temperature. You can make your body and limbs completely rigid. You will be able to recall lost memories and experience age regression. Here you can vividly experience the sensation of lightness, floating, or flying. You can also experience both positive and negative visual and auditory hallucinations, both while in trance. And if given the proper suggestions, after awakening from the trance state, a positive hallucination is when you are told that you see something that is not there, and you see it. A negative hallucination is when you are told that you do not see something that is there, and you do not. In this state, you can also stimulate dreams and visions, both during the trance state and upon proper suggestion later in natural sleep. Each depth of trance has valuable uses. For example, in light and medium trances, you can learn to begin practical shamanic journeying so that you can see, hear, touch, smell, experiences in the worlds which border ours. In those trance states, these journeys will feel similar to the fantasy or daydream, and you may wonder if it's real or just your imagination. As you train yourself to deepen the trance, the journeys become more vivid, until in deep trance, they look and feel as if they were taking place in physical reality. Alright, very cool. And I think I will end on that one. All right. Thanks for listening today. I tried my best to incorporate sh enough shamanic stories with enough mystical experience stories. And I think it's probably more heavy on the shamanic side. And I did include in their ayahuasca and shroom trip reports because I believe you can have mystical experiences on those things and that's confirmed with the science that I was reading um, I didn't share everything because it got a little too uh, medical <laughs> on some of them and I was like er, I don't even understand this so <laughs> basically a bunch of smart people are saying you can have mystical experiences on shrooms <laughs> that was in summary okay cool so this was a fun one to explore I actually know a couple of people that do the shamanic uh, journey themselves, and I would love to interview them and possibly do a future episode. So with that being said, if you are yourself in a mystic practice or a shamanic practice and I got anything wrong here or read the wrong article, please let me know. I'd be happy to correct anything. Um, and again, I am just going from researching on the internet, so... Like I said, if anything is out of sorts or wrong, please let me know. All right. Be sure to follow us on the Facebook page at Paranormal Stories Spooky Shiz. Spooky Shiz is in parentheses. It's a great way to connect with me and send me your stories for future episodes. All right. Thanks for being here today and stay spooky.